Stanford University. A physician is called upon to examine the chest many, many times in his career. And it's important for him to, first of all, inspect the chest, look to see how the chest moves with respiration, and then to palpate the different parts of the chest, to verify what he can see, and also test to see if he can feel any movements of the heart or any irregularities of the chest. And then he can use his stethoscope and listen to the chest. Now, for you to be able to do this and understand what is going on inside the chest, it's essential that a student or a physician knows the relationship between these structures inside the chest and the surface markings on the outside of the chest. Now, let us first of all look at the bony landmarks. Now, I'm going to start right up at the top here. You can feel the clavicle along its whole length. It is subcutaneous. And incidentally, it's one of the most common bones to be fractured in the body. And we come out to the lateral end of the clavicle and we can feel its articulation with the acromion process. And then we come to the point of the shoulder and you will notice that the point of the shoulder is not produced by the acromion, but is produced by the deltoid muscle being pushed laterally by the greater tuberosity of the humerus. So we can feel the acromioclavicular joint and we can come medially and feel the sternoclavicular joint. Now in the midline here you can see coming down from the neck on either side we've got the two origins of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. And we have a little notch here, which is the upper margin of the manubrium sterni and called the suprasternal notch. And so we go out onto the other side, the clavicle, the acromion process, the curve of the shoulder produced by the deltoid and pushed laterally by the greater tuberosity of the humerus. Now let us come down in the midline. As we come down here, we feel the front of the manubrium, the upper end of the sternum. And we notice that it articulates at this point here with the body of the sternum. And there's a distinct ridge that we can all easily feel. And it's important that we realize that this ridge is opposite the second costal cartilage. And this provides an important landmark for us to be able to count down the various costal cartilages. All right, so this is the manubrium sterni, the body of the sternum, and the sternal angle. And we come on down, and we drop off here into a depression where the body of the sternum articulates with the xiphoid process. And from there onwards, we're then into the anterior abdominal wall. And the depression we see in the anterior abdominal wall in the midline is produced by the underlying linear alba and the two rectus abdominis muscles. Now, if we follow the costal margin down here, we have the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th ribs with the costal cartilages. In fact, the last part of the thorax here is formed by the 10th costal cartilage. And as we run our hand fingers up the side of the thorax, we can feel the various ribs and intercostal spaces until we come here to this mass of muscle here, which is formed by the pectoralis major. And we can see the anterior axillary fold formed by the lower margin of the pectoralis major. Here we have the nipple with the areola. This usually lies in front of the fourth intercostal space in the male but it's extremely variable, and of course, especially variable in the female. Now, what I want to do is mark out the 
positions of first of all the pleura and then the lungs and finally the position of the heart on the chest wall. Now having pointed out the important bony landmarks, I now propose to mark in on this person the line where the pleura comes up close to the thoracic wall and this point or line is referred to as the pleural reflections. Now the first point I'm going to take is where the pleura extends up into the neck and not everybody realizes this but it extends up for about one inch above the clavicle. In fact the first point I'm going to make is just about there where the medial third of the clavicle joins the intermediate third. From this point on downwards the anterior margin of the pleura comes down to the sternoclavicular joint and from the sternoclavicular joint it passes down to the sternal angle which you remember is the angle or joint between the manubrium and the body of the sternum and it practically reaches that point near the midline. From this point onwards it passes down to the sixth costal cartilage. Now you find the sixth costal cartilage by running your finger down the front of the sternum to the maneuver sternal joint coming out to the second costal cartilage that's the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. So we come on down and at this point here it's near the ziffy sternal junction and it's beginning to come out laterally. Now the parietal pleura where it is joining with the costal pleura joining up with the diaphragmatic pleura is now going to sweep out round the side and we have to accurately mark this out bearing in mind that we're taking about the mid-inspiratory position, that is the midpoint between full inspiration and full expiration. Halfway along the clavicle, we can say this is about the mid-clavicular line, we come out to the eighth costal cartilage. Again, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And so in the mid-clavicular line, we're out to about eight. Then we come, if you could just turn around slightly, to the mid-axillary line, which is the midpoint between the anterior axillary fold formed by the pectoralis major and the posterior axillary fold formed by the latissimus dorsi winding around the teres major. Now the mid-axillary line is the midpoint between those two folds and it's here and in the mid-axillary line it is on the tenth rib. Now if we turn the patient round still further we come to the scapular line which is the vertical line going through the inferior angle of the scapula. Here's the inferior angle of the scapula, vertical line down here, and we trace our mark down here, and we come to the 10, 11, and come down to 12. Now from this point onwards, we take the width of our fist across the back, and we say the pleura comes up the side of the vertebral column. And so we can now draw this up in this sort of manner, turning the patient round and joining this point up here, we now have the total boundaries of the pleural reflections. One inch above the clavicle, sternoclavicular joint, at the sternal angle near the midline, ziphysternal joint coming out to the sixth, midclavicular line eight, midaxillary line 10 and round the back the uh, scapular line 
the 12. Now we can do exactly the same thing on the other side. Coming up about an inch, coming down behind the sternoclavicular joint, re reaching the fellow near the uh, midline at the sternal angle, coming down as far as the fourth costal cartilage. There's the sternal angle, second, third, fourth. At this point, we come out to the lateral margin of the sternum. We go no further than that, which is the beginning of a sort of notch, a cardiac notch. And so we come on down here, and then we do the same thing. Six, eight, mid-axillary line, ten, round the back, twelve, continue the line up, down the back, in this manner. So now we have outlined the pleural reflections on the two sides, the only difference being that on the left side we have a cardiac notch. Now, if we put in the lungs, this is, in other words, the, where the visceral pleura is in position. The lungs extend up into the neck. This is the apex of the lung, for about an inch above the clavicle. So we come down, closely following the other line, the black line, which is the parietal pleural reflection, behind the sternoclavicular joint, then down to the sternal angle near the midline, then down to the region of the xiphysternum. Instead of going 6, 8, 10, 12, we now go 6, 6, 8, 10. So we come down here, still keeping on the 6th, and you can count the 6th down by going from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th in the mid-axillary line, coming on around, 10 in the scapular line, and then coming up and joining up with the other point here, and coming over. And of course, I've had to go much higher there because of the pole produced by the trapezius, but it goes at least an inch above the clavicle. Now, what happens on the other side? Very similar, comes down behind the sternoclavicular joint, near the midline at the sternal angle, comes down to the fourth costal cartilages, second, third, fourth, and now it takes quite a large step to the left, but it's variable, and it may go one, one and a half inches out from the left margin of the sternum. And this is the true cardiac notch. And then it comes on down to the sixth, and then it goes six, six, eight, in the mid-axillary line, and ten, round the back here, and then coming up, joining up with the apex of the lung, coming on down in that manner, and joining up. Now, I think it's important to realize that the lungs are not one lobe. There are three lobes on this side, on the right side, and two lobes on the left side. And the main separation of these lobes on each side is the oblique fissure. Now, the oblique fissure follows the direction of the sixth costal cartilage. And it comes down from the back, from the region of the root of the spine of the scapula, and follows the sixth costal, six, second, third, fourth, fifth, 
sixth, and it's going to follow it round along this sixth cartilage. The same on the other side. I'm not bothering, obviously, to feel it, but it's, that's where you would find it on both sides, coming up to the root of the, the, of the spine of the scapula. So here's the oblique fissure, and on this side we have the upper lobe of the lung and the lower lobe of the lung. But on this side, on the right side, we said there were three lobes. We have, in fact, a horizontal fissure. And this extends from the level of the fourth costal cartilage round to where it joins the oblique fissure and the midaxillary line. Fourth costal cartilage. External angle, second costal cartilage. Third, fourth. And there it joins it in the midaxillary line. So here is our upper lobe, here is our middle lobe, here is our lower lobe. Upper lobe, lower lobe. And every physician should know the position of these lobes. And please note that in the axilla, if you get the patient to raise his arm, you can listen to the upper lobe, the middle lobe, and the lower lobe. And on the other side, you do the same thing. Upper lobe, lower lobe. Please note the gap that exists between the lower margin of the lung and the pleura. This is this costodiaphragmatic recess. And as you inspire to full inspiration, that lower margin of the lung will descend into that important costodiaphragmatic recess. Please note the area occupied by the lungs and the pleura. Nothing's more frustrating than to see a physician listening to uh, the chest below the level of these pleural reflections. All he's doing is listening to the liver. He's not listening to the lungs or the pleural areas. Having put in the surface markings of the lungs and pleura, we would now like to indicate on the surface the margins of the heart. Again, we feel down the front of the manubrium until we feel the manubrosternal angle. This is opposite the second costal cartilage. Now, the base of the heart extends from the upper margin of the second on the left side to the lower margin of the second costal cartilage on the right. From here, it extends down to the sixth costal cartilage. And the right margin of the heart comes out of finger's breadth to the right of the margin of the sternum until it gets to the sixth costal cartilage. On the left side, we feel for the apex beat of the heart. And we can bend the patient forward. Yes, I can feel the apex beat three and a half inches from the midline, which is in the fifth intercostal space. Second, third, fourth, fifth rib, fifth intercostal space. And so we connect up with the apex beat. So we now have the lower margin of the heart, going from the sixth costal cartilage, about half an inch from the margin of the sternum, across to the apex beat, which is in the fifth left intercostal space, about three and a half inches from the midline. Now all we have to do is connect this point here, which is the upper margin of the second left costal cartilage, down to the apex beat. And this, mar this margin of the heart is formed by the left ventricle. Now when you're listening to the heart, it's very important that you know the areas where you can best hear the heart valves. Now, you know that the aorta is coming up here behind the manubrium sterni, so the best place to listen is in the second right intercostal space. So I'm just going to put an A there for the aorta. Now, the pulmonary valve is best heard on the other, on the other intercostal space, just next to the sternum. So there's the pulmonary valve. The mitral valve is best heard towards the apex of the heart. 
so I'm just going to indicate the mitral valve there towards the apex. And the tricuspid valve is best heard behind the lower end of the sternum. Now you have superimposed on the surface of the thorax the pleural reflections and the outline of the heart and the areas where you may best hear the various valves. Looked at the surface anatomy of the pleural reflections and the heart on the living subject, I think we should now turn to the blackboard and make a drawing of a cross-section of the thoracic cavity. You will remember that posteriorly we have a thoracic vertebral body, heart-shaped, and behind that we have the pedicles, which in turn are connected to the laminae, and so we have an almost circular uh, small vertebral foramen. And then coming off the pedicles at the side, we have the transverse processes, and then sloping downwards and backwards, we have the spine of the vertebra. So this is the typical heart-shaped uh, vertebral body that we see in the thorax. Now at the side, we can indicate the position of the head of the rib here articulating with the side of the body, and then the rib sweeping around the thoracic wall to the front, where by means of its uh, costal cartilage, it'll articulate with the sternum. Now we can indicate the position here of the sternum, the body of the sternum, and just indicate uh, the costal cartilage coming in on either side to connect the rib uh, to uh, the sternum. Now we find that the cavity of the thorax is in fact divided into two by means of a partition which is referred to as the mediastinum. This is a partition which extends from the inlet of the thorax above to the outlet below and separates these two pulmonary chambers in which will lie the pleural cavities and the lungs. Now if we follow this lining which is referred to as the parietal pleura around on the inside of the chest wall we see that it lines the ribs and the intercostal spaces and comes around in that manner and the same thing on the other side so that we have now the chest wall lined with what we refer to as parietal pleura. Now the parietal pleura is named according to the area which it covers. For example, in this region here, it's lining the chest wall, so we refer to it as the costal parietal pleura. This region here, which is covering the mediastinum, we refer to as the mediastinal uh, area of parietal pleura. And this area on either side, which will be occupied by the lungs, we refer to as the pulmonary chambers. Now, if we look in another diagram, next door to this, of a, a coronal section through the thorax, we can make up the same type of picture. This we can indicate as being the chest wall on either side, and below we can indicate the position of the diaphragm, which closes the thoracic outlet down below. Here's one cupola of the diaphragm, and here's the left pupola of the diaphragm, and then we can bring down the mediastinal pleura in exactly the same way of forming a partition 
in the middle uh, of the thoracic cavity. So this is the mediastinal pleura, parietal pleura, and this is the parietal pleura, which comes down lining the chest wall, and then coming up onto the upper surface of the diaphragm, and then being continuous with the mediastinal pleura. And exactly the same way down on the other side. Uh, the costal parietal pleura, and then coming round on the upper surface of the diaphragm, and becoming continuous uh, with the mediastinal parietal pleura. So on this particular section, we can recognize the following areas of the parietal pleura. The costal parietal pleura lining the chest wall, the diaphragmatic parietal pleura covering the upper surface of the diaphragm, and the mediastinal parietal pleura uh, covering the, uh, this partition which lies in the midline. I would point out that above here, the parietal pleura extends up into the root of the neck, and it is sometimes referred to as the cervical part of the parietal pleura. Now, you must realize that this is a, a very simplified uh, picture, and we haven't put in uh, the trachea coming down into the mediastinum and giving rise to the lungs on either side. Now, you may remember from your embryology that the uh, trachea and lungs develop as is the, the ringotracheal tube growing out from the foregut. And if we assume that this is grown down into this area, we must, of course, put in the region where the lung is growing out into these pulmonary chambers. And we can indicate this in this sort of manner. We can now change the color so it is clear. As the lung grows out into this region, we get this sort of arrangement. So that now we have the mediastinal parietal pleura becoming continuous with the pleura which is covering the lungs on each side. And we refer to this pleura that covers the lungs as the visceral pleura. Visceral pleura. And the visceral pleura becomes continuous with the mediastinal pleura at the hilum of the lung. And on this diagram here, we can indicate the same sort of thing happening. The trachea having grown down, it then pushes out the mediastinal parietal pleura, which now covers the lung in this sort of manner and comes up and becomes continuous with the mediastinal parietal pleura. And so we have this arrangement on each side. Visceral pleura covering the lung and at the root of the lung becoming continuous with the mediastinal parietal pleura. Now, of course, as the lungs go on expanding and increasing in size, this space between the visceral pleura and the parietal pleura uh, becomes diminished until we end up with the space being so small uh, that for practical purposes they're almost in contact with one another. They're just being a thin film of fluid occupying this very, very small space uh, between the visceral pleura and the parietal pleura. And it is this very thin space which is referred to as the pleural cavity. And the small amount of fluid that exists between the visceral pleura and the parietal pleura enables these two surfaces to move upon one another as we inspire and expire during respiration. So let us do this on the other side again, fill this in, and as the lungs expand during development, so the visceral pleura uh, almost touches uh, the parietal pleura, just being this little potential space left behind, which is the pleural cavity, and under normal conditions is filled with just a thin film of fluid 
between those two layers. And the same holds true on this diagram. As the lungs have expanded, so the pulmonary chamber becomes more and more occupied by the lung and the visceral pleura comes almost in contact uh, with the parietal pleura. Now when we come down to this position here, I must emphasize to you that the lung does not extend all the way down into this gap between the diaphragm and the chest wall. It is only when the person takes a deep breath that this space opens up and the lower edge of the lung can actually pass down into this interval between the uh, diaphragmatic layer of parietal pleura and the costal layer of parietal pleura. This little space here is referred to as the costodiaphragmatic recess. And it, the lung only descends into that space during, at the end of full inspiration. And again, as the lung develops on this side, we can repeat the, the drawing, the visceral layer coming almost in contact with the parietal layer all the way down and then coming up in that way. So you see, initially, we started off with a thoracic cavity bounded behind by the vertebral column, bounded in front by the sternum, and bounded at the sides by the ribbed and costal cartilages. We saw how this large thoracic cavity became divided into two by the presence of this mediastinum, this partition which extends between the vertebral column behind and the sternum in front, up to the root of the neck, to the entrance into the thorax, and down to the diaphragm below. We now understand, I think, how during development, the lung, the, the ringotracheal tube, grows down into this mediastinum, into this partition, and then as it divides and gives rise to the right and left buds of the lung, uh, then we find the, that the lungs push out this pleura, and as the pleura is pushed further and further out, it comes almost in contact with this blue, light blue, uh, parietal pleura. It is thus seen that the lung is covered with visceral pleura and the, the thoracic cavity is lined with parietal pleura. And the visceral pleura and parietal pleura come into very close apposition, there being just a thin film of fluid lying between the two to allow them to, these two layers to move upon one another. The point I wish to emphasize is that the pleural cavity is this minute potential space that lies between the visceral pleura, the dark blue, and the parietal pleura, which is the light blue. And again, if we look in this picture with the coronal section of the thorax, we see how we have the same arrangement, the hilum of the lungs on either side of the mediastinum here, and the visceral pleura, the dark blue, covering the lungs, and the parietal pleura lining the thorax. And you can see how the parietal pleura lining the costal uh, wall and the diaphragmatic parietal pleura come together in this corner and that only in full inspiration do these layers separate and allow the lower edges of the lungs to come down into this space. This space on either side is referred to as the costodiaphragmatic space. Another point I wish to emphasize is the fact that the parietal pleura, the light blue area, is supplied by somatic nerves and therefore is sensitive
to pain, temperature, touch and pressure, whereas the visceral pleura, shown in dark blue, is only sensitive to stretch. Now this is of considerable practical importance, because it means that if a patient has disease, such as pneumonia, in the lung, then the inflammatory process can involve the lung without causing very much disturbance of, uh, in, in terms of pain, but once it crosses the pleural cavity and involves the parietal pleura, then the patient will immediately become aware of an acute pain over the area involved. The chest wall is made up of 12 pairs of ribs and a sternum in front and the vertebral column behind. Now, if we look at the uh, chest wall uh, and look at one rib in particular, we can see that we have the head of the rib here and this uh, gives rise to the neck of the rib and then we follow the rib down and it sweeps around the side of the thoracic wall in this sort of way and we see that at the back here we have a tubercle for articulation uh, with the transverse process. So here we have a head which articulates with the side of the body of the vertebra and here we have a tubercle which articulates with the transverse process. Now if we put in uh, the next rib below that we can see this sort of arrangement with the rib sweeping round below and this coming round here with our tubercle hidden by the rib above. And if we take the next rib and sweep it round, we see we have the shaft of the rib coming up like this and the rest of the rib here and the tubercle at the back here. Now what lies between the ribs? These are areas are referred to as the intercostal spaces and filling in the intervals we have the intercostal muscles. Now the first intercostal muscle I want to put in is the one that's lying most superficial, the external intercostal muscle. Now the external intercostal muscle arises from the lower margin of the rib above and is inserted into the upper margin of the rib below in this sort of manner. The fibers are coming down and they're coming downwards and forwards and are coming into the uh, upper margin of the rib below in this sort of manner. The direction of the fibers are downwards and forwards. And as we bring this muscle forward, we reach an area in front where the muscle gives rise to the anterior intercostal membrane. And the anterior intercostal membrane we'll put in in this sort of color. This is a membranous structure. So here we have the external intercostal muscle which the fibers come downwards and forwards and inserted into the upper border of the rib below. Inside, more medial to the external intercostal muscle, we have the internal intercostal muscle. And these fibers travel from the rib above downwards and backwards to the rib below. And they arise right forward near the side of the body of the sternum and they're passing downwards and backwards in this direction until they reach the region of the angle of the rib where the rib is turning backwards and there we give rise to the posterior intercostal membrane.
which fills in the interval and goes all the way around. Now, within that again, we have another muscle, which is sometimes referred to as the transverse thoracis. It is an incomplete muscle consisting of three parts, a sternocostalis in front, uh, an intercostal intimus in the middle, and a subcostalis at the back. It is of no great importance, and it is an incomplete layer. So that, but nevertheless, you must realize that lying between adjacent ribs uh, is a muscle, and the muscle is arranged in three layers. An external intercostal muscle, where the fibers coming in this direction, an internal intercostal muscle, where the fibers going in that direction, and this incomplete layer lying within that, the so-called transverse thoracis. Having seen the arrangement of the external intercostal muscle and the internal intercostal muscle, let us go to a cross-section of the thorax and draw them in position. The external intercostal muscle uh, arises way back uh, near the vertebra, uh, rising from the rib above and passing downwards and forwards to the rib below, and it will occupy an area coming forward to near the costal cartilage. And here, from here onwards, there will be the anterior intercostal membrane, completing the picture. And then on this side, the external intercostal muscle, I'm just drawing the position of the muscle in relation to the uh, vertebra behind and the sternum in front. Again, we have the uh, muscle layer completed in front by the anterior intercostal membrane, as I have shown here. Now, within this, we have the internal intercostal muscle. And the internal intercostal muscle arises well forward here, passing backwards, lying within the external intercostal muscle. And the layer is completed posteriorly by the posterior intercostal membrane, which comes around to that, about that point. So on this side, we have the posterior intercostal membrane coming around, and then the rest of the layer is completed by the internal intercostal muscle coming forward in that sort of manner. Now, within that again, we have this incomplete layer, sometimes referred to as the transverse thoracis. We have the stenocostalis part here on either side. And then we have the intercostal intimus muscle lying here. And then we have the a subcostalis muscle lying at the back here in this region. Notice that this third layer is incomplete, having this part here, this part here, and there, and the three together are referred to as the transverse thoracis. So in an intercostal space, you have three layers of muscle. An external intercostal, where the fibers go downwards and forwards. An internal intercostal muscle, where the fibers go upwards and forwards and this incomplete layer referred to as the transverse thoracis. Now, we can put on the inside of this uh, a layer which we can indicate as the costal layer of the parietal pleura on each side. And on the outside of the intercostal muscles, we can indicate the position of the subcutaneous tissue and then put in of course, the skin coming around, going around on the outside of the subcutaneous tissue, and finally onto the back. 
Well, now, having got these muscles in position, I think it'd be interesting for us to put in the nerve supply to these muscles on this side and trace around the blood supply to the muscles on that side. Now, let us put in the nerve supply uh, to the intercostal space. If we realize that here we have the spinal cord in position in the vertebral canal and we have the posterior root coming off with the posterior root ganglion and then we have the anterior root and the two combine together to form the spinal nerve as it lies inside the intervertebral foramen. Once the spinal nerve comes out, it divides into a posterior primary ramus which passes backwards and divides into a medial and a lateral cutaneous nerve which supplies the skin over the back and also, of course, is supplying the postvertebral muscles. This is the posterior primary ramus of this particular spinal nerve. Now, the anterior primary ramus courses on round and enters the intercostal space. It's, of course, lying behind the parietal pleura and it enters the interval between the transverse thoracis and the posterior intercostal membrane. And here it courses on round in this interval, in this manner, until it reaches the region of the side of the sternum. And here it's going to end by perforating through here and dividing into a medial branch and a lateral branch. And this is known as the anterior cutaneous nerve. About halfway around, the intercostal nerve uh, gives off a lateral cutaneous branch, which splits in this manner. And so we see that the skin over the intercostal space is supplied by this spinal nerve. Let us say, for the example, this is uh, the fourth intercostal nerve. Then the posterior primary ramus will supply an area of skin over the back and the anterior primary ramus will come round and become the intercostal nerve because it's lying between two ribs, gives off its lateral cutaneous branch, which divides in this manner, and then comes on forward and ends as an anterior cutaneous branch, which divides into a medial and lateral uh, branches. So that we have a strip of skin going all the way around the thorax, right from the midline posteriorly to the midline anteriorly, which is supplied by one segment of the spinal cord. This is, in fact, a dermatome. Now, what other uh, structures does this nerve supply? It supplies the intercostal muscles, all three layers, the external intercostal muscle, the internal intercostal muscle, and this incomplete uh, transverse thoracis. It also supplies the parietal pleura. And I think it's important to realize this, that the whole thickness of the intercostal space is supplied by a single intercostal nerve. The skin on the outside, the three layers of muscles, and the parietal pleura uh, on the inside. Now, this arrangement holds from the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth intercostal spaces. Once we get down below this level, in the seventh intercostal space, this anterior part of the intercostal nerve will come forward into the anterior abdominal wall and will also supply the skin of the abdomen and the muscles of the abdominal wall and the parietal peritoneum. 
In fact, we know that the, this seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, and the eleventh intercostal nerves supply not only the uh, skin muscles of the intercostal spaces and the parietal pleura, but also enter the abdominal wall and supply the skin, the abdominal muscles, and the parietal peritoneum. Now, on the other side, uh, I'd like to put in the blood supply to uh, a typical intercostal space. And I can show here uh, the junction of the arch of the aorta with the descending thoracic aorta. So there's the beginning of the descending thoracic aorta going down on the side of the uh, fourth thoracic vertebral body. Now we can show here a post-intercostal artery coming off and passing round in the same interval as the intercostal nerve. In other words, passing between the transverse thoracis and the post-intercostal membrane. And as it passes round and enters this interval, it gives off a branch which passes backwards and supplies the skin and muscles in the post-vertebral region. It also gives off a little branch which comes off into the uh, vertebral canal to supply the meninges. We follow this post-intercostal artery round. We see that it continues in this interval between the transverse thoracis and the internal intercostal muscle and uh, ends lateral to the sternum. As it's coming on round, about this point here, it gives off a branch, a lateral cutaneous branch, which is coming through and are going to supply the skin and the muscles in that region. It, needless to say, it's supplying muscles and the parietal pleura as it's coming round. Now, situated in front, just a finger's breadth lateral to the margin of the sternum, is the internal thoracic artery. Now, this artery is a branch of the first part of the subclavian artery, and it descends uh, behind uh, the costal cartilages, a finger's breadth lateral to the sternum. And it ends in the sixth intercostal space by dividing into the musculophrenic artery and the superior epigastric artery. Now, as it's descending in this area, uh, it gives off an anterior intercostal artery, which is passing laterally and going to anastomose with the posterior intercostal artery, which has come off the descending thoracic aorta. It also gives off a perforating artery, which uh, supplies the skin and subcutaneous tissue. Now, I think if you look at this complete picture now, you see how the nerve comes around in this way, the spinal nerve uh, giving off the posterior primaryomus, which goes to the back, and the anterior primaryomus, which becomes the intercostal nerve. This intercostal nerve has similar arrangement to the corresponding arteries, in that they give off branches to the pleura, the muscles, and the skin, and they follow the same plane. That is, they lie between the innermost muscle, the transverse thoracis, and the internal intercostal muscle. And they supply the full thickness of the thoracic wall in the intercostal space, extending from the parietal pleura out to the skin, from the parietal pleura out to the skin. Let us now complete the pleura in this diagram. We bring around the parietal pleura lining the thoracic wall. We bring it down onto the mediastinum. And this is now the mediastinal part of the parietal pleura. And come round. And do the same on the other side, covering the uh, aorta down here. 
and then round here, covering the mediastinum, and then becoming continuous with the costal uh, parietal pleura. Now, this region here, then, will be the position of the hilum of the lung, so that we can just, for the sake of completion, now put in the uh, visceral uh, pleura of each lung. Bearing in mind that that small space that I'm leaving between the dark blue and the light blue is the space between the parietal pleura and the visceral pleura. Again, I emphasize that the parietal pleura is supplied by uh, somatic spinal nerves, whereas the visceral pleura, uh, the nerves are passing in and go up by the autonomic nerves, and they're only sensitive to stretch, whereas the parietal pleura is sensitive to pain and temperature, touch and pressure. Now, let us take a vertical section through an intercostal space and see how these muscles and nerves and vessels are related to one another. If we take a cross-section, then, of a rib, the, this is the shaft of the rib, we notice straight away that there is a groove called the subcostal groove. If we put in a rib below, here again is the subcostal groove. Now, if we put in position the uh, external intercostal muscle, we see that it comes down in this plane. This is the external intercostal muscle, here and here. Now, if we put beneath that the internal intercostal muscle, it occupies this plane, internal intercostal. And then if we put in the transverse thoracis, it's occupying this plane, the transverse thoracis lying innermost. Now, the vessels and nerves uh, are situated in this interval, and they have this order from above downwards. The vein is above, the artery, the intercostal artery is below, and the intercostal nerve lies below that. And it is important for you to realize that the intercostal nerve lies hard up against the rib above. So that if you're going to place and pass a needle through here, keep close to the upper border of a rib rather than going close to the lower border of the rib. Damage to an intercostal nerve may give rise to paralysis of the intercostal muscles or even uh, the abdominal muscles. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.